you'll come off looking fantastic because the software will make you look fantastic. Just like a website, you want to make sure that if you start it, you stay committed to it. Hello and welcome from the tiny city of Hazlitt, Michigan here in the United States. I'm your host, Constantine Zigo, and you are listening to the Business of Artisan Chocolate podcast. I want to welcome my listeners that are from all around the world now. I just checked a couple of minutes ago, and we're up to 41 countries that are represented. So thank you so much for listening from around the world and sharing the podcast with other people. That's that's fantastic. And you know, while I'm at it, let me just say that there are no politics in chocolate. I love all of you, and you should all love each other. So we have this one very special bond that unites all of us that has nothing to do with borders or Pollux or anything else. It has to do with simply the love of money. No, I mean chocolate, the love of chocolate. And before we get into today's episode, I've got to give you an update on the apple trees. You know, I'm trying to build this apple orchard and get these trees growing. And I've got these beautiful little buds on my apple trees, just making those little tiny flowers. You know, they're not really flowers yet. They're coming. But next to the apple trees, a cherry tree. And the cherry tree is just full of blossoms. And next to that is a peach tree. And the peach tree is also full of blossoms. So everything is going well. I've got the bees out there. They're buzzing and they're everything's just happening. And then we get a freeze warning. A freeze warning where it's going to get down to 24 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? So obviously everything's going to die. So we're out there as a family. We're putting frost blankets over the top of the trees and I've got a propane heater going and I've got electric heaters underneath. I got the whole thing rigged up and because I'm Joe Techie, I've got one of those thermometers hanging on the tree, two thermometers actually, hanging on two different trees, reporting the temperature in wirelessly to this little remote weather station that I can watch on my computer screen. So it's like 11 o'clock at night and the temperatures are doing pretty good and it's 1130 and it's 12 and, and you know that's when the temperatures are supposed to really go down. And uh, my wife goes to bed. Everybody's asleep. It's 1230. And I'm watching this temperature and it's starting to dive and it's really diving fast. Now it's at 30 and it's at 29. I'm getting nervous. So I decide, okay, I need to go out there and see what's going on. So I go out there with my flashlight and all of the stuff that we have put up on the trees. All of the frost blankets, the whole, everything was tied down with stones, you name it. Okay, all of that was blown off and laying on the ground. Now, mind you, it took four of us to put this shit up, okay? And now it's one o'clock in the morning, it's freezing cold, and it's all down, all right? So, I'm, I'll be damned if I'm going to let this stuff freeze. So I'm out there at myself, flashlight in my teeth, and I've, I'm on a ladder. And I and so basically, I rebuild this whole fiasco myself as best I can. And I light the propane heater, and I and it's and it's working. Wow, you know I'm getting heat, 
and it, it's starting to happen. Then it, I see this, this wind like slowly start to catch the frost blanket. And it's like a giant sail from an enormous sailboat. You see it like pull way up into the air and then down again. It's slow. It's in slow motion, but it's moving. And that frost blanket comes up against that propane heater and you can see the smoke uh, freaking out, right? I'm going to burn up the whole damn house. I'm going to burn up the whole neighborhood. So this isn't going to work. So I had to turn off the propane heater. I had to go back to just the electric. I retied it basically an hour out there trying to rebuild this whole thing. I don't know, 2.30 or something in the morning. I said, the hell with it. I, this is it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. And uh, so in the morning, we look at the thermometers and you know it shows you a graph of, of what the temperatures were overnight and it had gotten all the way down to 24 degrees which should be like a 90% kill uh, on the flowers so I was just devastated but it's been a couple of days now and I see that the cherry tree really got it the worst I mean that's the one and uh, but the apple trees they're okay because I guess they just didn't, they just weren't far enough along. And I I guess the peach tree is all right also. So it's really just the cherry tree that got hit the worst. And I thought we were done with this. And I just heard now we've got another frost warning coming. But this one's only to 32 degrees. Hopefully I can I can survive that. So that's that's the apple tree, the apple orchard update. All that aside, in this episode, we are going to talk about selling your chocolates online, how to do it, what all the steps are. You'll see that it's pretty involved, but it's not super hard either, and it doesn't have a super high bar, so you can do a really nice job. It can look really professional, and it's not very difficult to do, but there are a lot of steps, and you got to be mindful of those steps. So anyway, let's get into episode number four. For some people, selling online is the very first thing that they do. It's the first thing that occurs to them to do. For others, it seems very foreign, seems very uncomfortable. They're not optimistic about it. They're reluctant to get into it. And there are some myths around selling online that I'd like to dispel right up front. The first one, and I was told this, that the only people that buy from you are people that know you personally. That's definitely not true. It doesn't take long for your circle to expand and you definitely get orders all the time from people that you've never met and you you don't you don't know them personally at all the second myth is that you need to be an online advertiser to get sales you need to do digital advertising and i'm going to dispel that too i i don't think that that's necessarily the rest the best route to go paid advertising is probably not economical the third myth is that you have to work social media really hard. And if you're not really on social media in a tremendous, dedicated way, that your online storefront will not do well. I disagree with that as well. And I guess the fourth myth that I want to dispel right up front is that it's easy. Some people think it's easy to put up a store, let it go. And no, it's not. 
just like everything else, there's a ROI on that in terms of your time and there's costs and there's dedication that you need to it. Here are the things that I want to cover in this episode. I want to cover the mechanics to selling online. You'll see that there's lots of steps. There indeed is a process. So I want you to understand that process, all of the mechanics for doing it. The second thing I want to discuss is the competing tactics that you have for selling online, which I believe will ultimately lead you to deciding that you should create an online store. So then the third thing I want to discuss is what the requirements are to set up that electronic storefront. I also want to talk you through the process flow for orders and fulfillment. This is important because you'll be spending your time doing this. When an order comes in, you need to understand all the steps that it takes to get it out the door. I also want to talk you through the basic return on investment, your costs versus your income and your time. I do want to talk to you also about how to market and promote your online store. I said, maybe you don't want to be in digital advertising to do it. Well, you've got to do something, right? People need to know that it exists. So what should that something be? And if we've got time, we'll go into an even more advanced ROI and look at some actual numbers so that you can understand how the economics of an electronic storefront shake out. What I most want you to get out of this episode is the following. The first is that online is probably worth doing. The second is that the cost is probably low enough for you to do it correctly and professionally, even right from the very beginning. In other words, this isn't something you need to slowly step and morph into. I think it's something you can just do right, right from the beginning. The third thing I want you to get out of this is that it's an investment and you cannot forget about it. This will cost you time. It is once it is something that once you start it, you've got to keep it going. And the fourth thing I want you to understand, and this is a biggie, is that online selling gets busy at exactly the same time that all of your other channels get busy. So what it does not do for you is smooth things out. Peaks occur in online and retail and all the other forms of channels pretty much around the same time, generally holiday peaking. Of course, there's some where you just get orders come in here and there, but I don't want you to get a false sense of hope that an online store will smooth that curve for you. And that is something to take into consideration. And before we start, I should say that I know I've got a wide variety of listeners from chocolatiers that have been in the business for 15, 20 years plus and that are looking for ways to expand their business and to generate more income and understand the economics better, all the way to people who are just starting out, they're still in school, they're using their home kitchens and so on. So I want to say that at least for the United States market, I don't know how this is in all parts of the world, but in the United States market, we have something called the cottage foods law. This is a state by state law. And it basically says that if you 
operate under the cottage foods law, meaning that you are working in a in a home kitchen. It's not a licensed commercial kitchen. It's a home kitchen. Then you would not be able to ship products to people that you don't make face to face contact with, because that's the requirement of cottage foods laws that if you sell something to someone, they have to be able to talk to you and ask you questions and so on. And so by taking an online order and shipping it to them, it it breaks that rule. You can still take an order. You can still take someone's money. You could still deliver the product in your city. So you could still operate an online store, but you couldn't actually ship it out without making face-to-face contact with the consumer. At least that's very specifically how it is here in Michigan. And I'm quite certain it's that way in most of the 50 states in the United States and probably in other parts of the world as well. So something to check into. So let's talk through the mechanics of selling online because I am a process person and I like breaking things down into processes and understanding those processes then of working on making those processes more efficient. Somehow all of the things that I'm going to list out for you now have to get done And your solution needs to scale. So think about that as I go through this list. You have to visually present your products and your pricing, whether that would be, you know, Facebook or Instagram store or a website or something. You have to have some mechanism to visually present products and pricing. You need a mechanism to take the order. Someone says, I want five of these. I want two of these. The third thing is, is you need to get a shipping address, unless it's a pickup order. They're going to say, hey, ship this thing to this person. Then there are often special instructions that go with that shipping request. Don't set it until Friday. Make sure it doesn't have an invoice in it. Make sure it has a note. Can the note please say the following, etc.? There are special instructions. Next, you'll need to take a payment. So that often involves a credit card or it might be another form of payment like PayPal, Venmo, etc. So you have to take money somehow. After you've taken the money, you have to be able to record the payment in your accounting system. Now that it's a paid order, and, and this is interesting, I should pause for a moment. This is the right way to do this. The kind of wrong way to do this is to take the payment later in the process step after you've gotten further ahead. And that can happen when, for example, you don't know what the shipping cost is going to be. So you slide the, re, the take the payment phase and the record payment phase later in the process flow because you don't know what shipping is going to be until you box things up. My advice to you and my experience is don't, don't do that. It causes other problems. So after you've recorded the payment, you have to pick the product, meaning you have to go assemble the product from wherever it is, gather it all together. And then you have to take all that product, you have to pack it into some kind of a box with shipping materials of some kind. And you have to find a way to make the box shippable and keep the product safe and clean and so on. You have to print a label somehow and you have to stick it on the box. Make sure it's the right label to the right box. And then you have to ship the product out 
So now you've got this box with a label on it. You've got to either drive it to a post office or take it to a UPS site or FedEx, or you have to call for pickup or somehow you have to, you have to get the product out. Then you have to note somewhere that the product actually has been shipped out. So you don't get confused about that. And then generally you need to notify the customer that it has been shipped out and give them some kind of a tracking number, some kind of confidence that it's gone out. And then for customer service purposes, you'll need to be able to track the product, maybe not neurotically, but you have to at least be able to track the product if the customer doesn't get it. And then really what you should do is you should do a post-order follow-up at some point. Hey, did you get it? What Did it turn out okay? Et cetera. And effectively, what you're doing is asking for a reorder in a, you know, really clever way. Let's compare the strategies for selling online. You could take orders anywhere that you have a customer interaction. This is my big idea when I first started. I thought, why well, have an online store that people need to go to and select a product and create a cart and log into and put their credit card in and all of these steps that were associated with online commerce, why couldn't we just skip all that and I could just meet my customers where they are? So if my customers are on Facebook, let me take my orders by Facebook Messenger. And if they're on Instagram, let them DM me. And if they're on text, let them text me. That's how I started. I thought I was a genius and it turned out to be a really big mistake. And I'm going to tell you why. The first problem is that if you have too many touch points for an order, it's very easy to get confused because you can't remember where the order was. So you remember that somebody sent you a message or something started today, but you were busy at that time. So you have to come back to it and you have to remember where that was. And you now have to start a very serious regimen of record keeping and tracking. So you start with the Excel spreadsheets and the sticky notes and all the things that, you, that you're trying to do to remember that an order was started or initiated by a customer. And then you have to do all of the work to complete the mechanics that I described. So it's cool that you've got the order, but now you need to get the shipping address, which is more transaction. You've got to find a way to take payment. What are you going to do? Are you going to send a billing link through Square? Are you going to allow a PayPal purchase? All that's all possible and great, but now you've got to go to recording that. So if you've got multiple touch points for the order and multiple touch points for the payment, you've got to converge all that back into a system, it gets out of hand very quickly. So I strongly recommend that you don't do that. It doesn't scale. The other thing you could do is take orders by email, which is marginally better. Maybe for me, because I'm older and I'm old, old school and I like email better, but it's also a longer form media. So you can type more details like what I want, where it's going, 
put the note inside, it 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 offers a larger exchange. And of course, you've got an email box to work with for some level of organization, but it doesn't really solve some problems. For example, I just had someone send me an email that says, hey, I'm having a virtual baby shower because it's COVID and I uh, there's going to be 10 people and we're going to do this over Zoom and I want them all to get chocolates. And that's great. That sounds great. I want to do that order. But now comes the processes of how do I get that email turned into 10 verified addresses, knowing exactly what they want. How do I get the money from this person, et cetera? There's, there's quite a bit there. It's hard. It's harder than you think when you get multiple orders coming in this way. You could also take in-person orders to be shipped somewhere. Because I have a shop and because people will come where we sell our ice cream and coffee and stuff and people will see a box of chocolates or whatever on the shelf and they'll come to the counter and they say, hey, can you ship this for me? And that's also surprisingly painful because you now have to get the address from that person and they tend to try to handwrite it on some slip of paper, which then starts floating around the shop. And what do you do for shipping? You just estimate it as best you can. Do you take the money now? And if you do, then that money is commingled with your shop revenue as opposed to being shipping. I mean, as opposed to being an online store revenue, which, okay, maybe that's not a huge deal, but it it doesn't allow you to separate it. Addresses you will find are often wrong. They won't verify. And then you find yourself guessing or Googling or calling to try to correct the address. So in-person orders, I guess, are a necessary evil. But again, without a system to put them into, it is yet another fragmented touch point. So these, the first three that I just took you through are all disastrous and they can only be managed if you spend a disproportionately large amount of time managing it. The fourth one, and I'm going to tell you this is this is the way to do it. The fourth one is to license professional storefront software like Shopify. I buy Shopify myself. I buy it on a one-year plan. It saves a few bucks. It's $312 a year. $300 a year to manage all of that process is absolutely worth the money if you decide you're going to get into online selling. And they have competitors too. It's not just Shopify, but I'm talking about professionally managed storefront software. And remember also that all of us are competing with Amazon and Amazon's e-commerce setup is so unbelievably good that if you're not running with a winner in the software space, you provide a customer service experience that is less than ideal, that is less than the standard, which is Amazon. The That's just where the bar is at. A home-built online storefront is also not great. I would not recommend it because there will be issues and problems there too. It's just, I just don't see how you can 
do better than $300 a year to solve this scale of a problem. For example, in Shopify or any online store, they type in their address. When they type in their address, it gets verified. So you know the address is correct. So you don't even have to hardly look at the address, which is already just a miracle. I remember when I used to do this outside of Shopify, I would go into the USPS, the the United States Post Office website and type in the address and then add it as a person so that I could then ship it to them. And Oh, it was was a nightmare because everything was double typing. It also prevents this confusion if you have too many channels or have lots of channels for people contacting you for orders, this provides you that single funnel. So it tells you clearly what's outstanding and what is fulfilled so you don't get confused. I'm saying even if you are willing to do customer engagement on multiple channels of communication, make sure that it all funnels back to a storefront system. That's what I do with my email orders when I get them, is I wind up converting them to online storefronts. I let them order by email, but then the order actually gets placed into my Shopify platform, which I then carry through the rest of the way. And I think that's that's the right way to do it. It's a much easier way to take their money if they're paying and you know that they've paid, you know their payment has gone through and it has gone through prior to the order being fulfilled because these platforms estimate shipping based on where it's going to, what they selected for a shipping option and what the weight of the product is and the volume. It absolutely saves time interacting with the customers to get the order. Frankly, there's just I guess I'm saying it a second time. I just don't see how you can convey that much value that a storefront provides for under $300. The other thing is, is that having a storefront, even if you don't sell a lot, is a wonderful living professional product showcase for what you offer. If nothing else than looking good in terms of where they can see all of your product in one place, I think a storefront is excellent. Now, what's what's bad about a storefront? What's the downside of managing an electronic storefront? I'm going to tell you what it is. Number one, keeping it updated. You have to curate and manage this thing. Second, you don't want to sell stuff you don't have. It's easy for them to type in quantity 74 and, and press order. Unless you want to do inventory management, which you can do in the software, so you don't let them buy beyond what you have, you would find yourself in a situation where you sell things online that you don't actually have, and now you're scrambling to try to to fill it. The other downside of an electronic storefront is, frankly, you falling behind. You just, you can't get the orders out fast enough, and people have an expectation that when they order online, stuff's going to go pretty fast. So, right? I mean, eBay, eBay, tons of individual sellers, almost always when you order something on eBay, within a few hours or absolutely the next day, that thing is shipped. You screwing around for seven, eight days is not something that customers are going to like. Perhaps a way of looking at this is that it's a very asymmetrical relationship in that it is 
very easy for them to order and actually very difficult for you to fulfill. It takes no effort for them to type in that they want 20 boxes. But for you, it's a big deal, right? So it's asymmetric in that sense, if you understand what I mean. And if you're late on sending your stuff, you're a piece of crap. And if you forget something in the box, you're a piece of crap. And if you include an invoice when it's a gift to somebody, you suck. And there are many other mistakes that you can make. You have to get this right. And it has perhaps very little to do with creating a beautiful piece of chocolate. This is logistics. And logistics is a big deal. And it's not easy. The other downside of this is that there are months that can go by where you get no sales at all. And you're like, what the hell am I doing this for? This is stupid. And that certainly was my experience in the beginning. It was a lot of upfront work to get this thing set up. And then I just sat there and sat there and I thought, wow, this is dumb. I don't know what I'm doing. That does change, but it's a downside I want you to be aware of. Let's switch now to talk about what it takes to fulfill an order when it actually comes in. What are the steps that you need to take? And remember, this happens at exactly the same time as all your other sales channels are busy. You may go a long time doing nothing and then suddenly you're doing this daily. This is absolutely, absolutely my experience. I'll get an order here, an order there. For COVID, I got a lot of orders, but I think that was... I don't think that's here to stay. I think that's just an, uh, a phenomenon that will, will change over time. We'll see. But what is, what I've noticed is that leading up to a holiday, right after a holiday, I'll get no sales at all. Day after day after day, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then as that holiday approaches, you get that first wave and then comes the second wave. And the first wave is the people that are thinking ahead that want to give themselves time to ship. And then the second wave are people that are, uh, it just dawned on them that they need to order something. And so they're in an all fire hurry to get something out the door. That is happening, as I said, the same time that your shop or whatever is also busy. And it'll something that you then wind up having to do pretty much every day. All right, so let's talk about this order fulfillment process. The order comes in. Now, let's say we're going to talk about this in the context of having a storefront. Okay. So the order comes in and the first thing they select is whether it's shipping or local pickup. You may not enable that feature, but if you do, that can be quite useful. It just means that they want to pay for it and pay for the order and have it available for pickup this Saturday when you'll be somewhere, which is cool. Or they want it shipped out. They also will type in special instructions that may impact the shipping date. And so that gets a little wonky. For example, they may say, well, don't mail it until this date, or I want to pick this up on this particular day at this location. And so here come now that again, the sticky notes and stuff so that you don't accidentally send something out before you're supposed to. But there are 
typically special instructions, including even handwriting a note of some kind in the box. Okay, then you have to gather up the product to be shipped. That's the pick stage, right? You have to gather it up. And that gets significantly more complicated when there are multiple orders. Picking a single order is quite straightforward, but when someone gives you 15 orders to pick and they're all of different sizes and different quantities, of course, multiple products, the gathering upstage is a bit more tricky. Then comes the step of, so you've got the stuff in a pile that you're going to send this particular person. And I, I'm, I'm imagining it now as I'm telling you about it. You've got, I may as well just tell you this too. My strong recommendation is that you start with a, with a flat blank table and that all of the products that go to this person get staged onto that table first. Everything. That is the stuff that they bought, the notes that are included in it. If you, if you're going to do your business card, whatever the, whatever the stuff is that's got to go into the box, put it on the table first, eyeball it, make sure it's right, double check the sheet. And now you know that stuff has to go into the box. Now you pull your box and you put in your packing materials, however you're going to do it, put the stuff into the box. In my case, I probably go a step further than others do, but I also do packaging fortification in that I don't like non-food safe packing material to make contact with boxes that have chocolates in them. I feel like it's too close for contamination, especially when there's fibers and stuff like that in there because I, I happen to use paper shreds. So there's a, there's an issue for contamination. So that, and I also don't like the, the humidity and things like that attacking. So I'll take the extra step of shrink wrapping the boxes, which if you've never looked at shrink wrapping before is quite inexpensive. It adds a time step, but it really does something cool in that it puts a beautiful plastic barrier around your box of chocolates or whatever. And it, uh, it, it can be moved into the freezer safely because it's got that plastic wrap around it. And I don't know how much these shrink wrappers cost. I can't be more than a hundred bucks, probably less. And, uh, and then you just, and then I went on eBay and I bought a roll of shrink wrap from somebody who used to do shrink wrapping a lot and didn't, didn't need their rolls anymore. <laughs> I will be buried with the shrimp wrap, shrink wrap because, and I didn't know it at the time. I bought three rolls of this stuff and it come in, uh, 70 some pounds worth of shrink wrap on these giant spools and I will never use it. But anyway, I have shrink wrapping for the rest of my life. And I didn't spend but 50 bucks for all of that. So anyway, I'm in the shrink wrapping business forever. So I shrink wrap the box. Okay, then I also have to select the best box. But that's, I've done it so much now that I know which box is going to go for it. So I pick a box and you will pick a box and put the stuff into it. And here starts kind of now the jigsaw puzzle of, how you put the stuff into the box and so that it doesn't break itself and whether or not you use ice packs or packing material um, 
or you use like a liner on the inside of a box, which I do for for temperature. It's that, that silvery bubble wrap type stuff. And sometimes I even freeze the entire box. I take the stuff that's inside of it and it gets packed into the box frozen. And then I freeze the entire box. This is as, you know, it's getting warmer and stuff. And I care about temperature and stuff. Also, I said earlier that you don't want to confuse your orders and your labels, which is putting label A on box B. So I'm also very careful about that. I've got my order on that clean table I was telling you about. I make sure that that order goes onto that box and then it gets its label. There's no possible confusion there because everything is it's handwritten on the box and it's also taped onto the box um, just so that I when I go to writing the label that I make sure the right label goes on the right box. Also, don't want to forget anything that's in that's supposed to go inside the box. Like I keep telling you, like a handwritten note or whatever. In general, you have to think about the unboxing experience. I think it was Apple that did this for all of us. Apple made it so that it was a thing that the way people unbox their product gives them a sense of satisfaction and joy. I really think about this. I th- I imagine what it's like for somebody to open up the box and pull the stuff out. And I make sure that it looks a certain way that I think it should look after they spent 50 bucks or 100 bucks having something shipped to them. I physically need to get the boxes somewhere or schedule a pickup. In my case, I can't really schedule pickup at my warehouse facility, so I schedule it at home. But if there's too many boxes, I wind up running it to the post office. It's a logistics thing that I've got to do all the time. And that means I have to store them somewhere for a bit. Sometimes it's in the freezer, sometimes in the fridge, sometimes at the car. But there's that logistics issue as well that has to be done. And and like I said, all this has to be recorded somewhere that it actually happened. And again, Shopify is a dream for that because all of this happened within Shopify. When you took the order, when you took the payment, when you printed the label, the customer already gets an email that says, here's your, your label's been printed. We're shipping it today. Here's your tracking number. All of this is automated. They thought through this whole thing so well. That's why I'm recommending it. But those are all the steps that you need to do to get through the order fulfillment process. All right, so let's take a breather after all that. This episode is all about lists. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's just like, this is the counting episode. I guess four things here, there's nine things there. Don't forget this, don't forget that. I guess it's just the nature of this. It's very process oriented. It's very logistics. It's a flow. I guess it's like making chocolates. There's a very precise set of steps. And if you screw up a step, you might not recover. And if you do recover, it, it might not be graceful necessarily. So it's just a lot of steps you got to watch. Although we don't have any corporate sponsors yet, I do want to reach out and thank three chocolatiers that have gone onto my show's website and donated to our podcast directly. I so much appreciate that. Uh, The first is David Upchurch from David Upchurch Chocolatier in San Francisco. Second is Raymond Davis from Jet Set Chocolates in Brenham, Texas. And finally, there's Mark and Cindy Carrolls from Fazio's Chocolates in Elk Grove, Wisconsin, which isn't too far from me. So once 
we get a chance to start moving around again after COVID subsides, maybe I can go for a little visit. So thank you again so much for the three of those folks that have put some money into the donation bucket at the website for the show. And that's where you can also drop an audio file if you want. Anyway, next up, we will talk about ideas for promoting your online store and how to get people buying. All right, let's get back into it. Let's shift gears now and talk about how you're going to tell people that you have a store, how you're going to get some traffic, how you're going to get sales. One of the ways you could go about it is to do digital advertising that's expensive. You can chew through a lot of money really quickly, but you can also be real careful about it. You can also be very sophisticated about it. I'm not going to teach you how to do digital advertising in the podcast, but I just want to explain it to you just at kind of a high level. The world, however, is changing and not for the better when it comes to digital advertising. Because when I was in the business a few years back, there were much fewer controls and restrictions on apps and websites sharing data between each other. And that allowed us to do fancy things like retargeting. A customer comes to your website or your online store and they look around for a little while, they don't buy anything, they then, they're then on Facebook and they see an ad in their newsfeed for your store. How did that happen? Well, you had you had a pixel on your storefront that you connected with Facebook, and so you're basically letting Facebook know that this particular person has been to your store. Then when you go to Facebook and you spend money with them, you can define an audience and say, hey, I want to, I want to send ads to all the people that have been to my store. And this is just the beginning of the sophistication. You can do much more than that. You can send in a set of email addresses to third parties. You could say, here are all the emails for all the people that have ever bought anything from my store. You send that off to a digital advertising company, which will marry those email addresses with uh, credit card companies, for example, and then find places around the internet where those browser where those customers are browsing and send them digital ads specifically off of your email addresses and then their friends and their friends of friends or people that are even like them which is called lookalike advertising which says okay well it looks like based on your data that you've got women in these ages that are buying your chocolates so let's find other women of these ages and these professions and these backgrounds, they might also be interested in your chocolate. And then let's geographically target them to be around a certain area. This is an entire world and you can spend a lot of money. So the way to do it probably is not by yourself because it is so sophisticated. I'm not saying you couldn't fire up a copy of, of Facebook Ads Manager or Google AdWords and, and go to town, but it can get expensive and you can make a lot of mistakes very quickly. So you probably want to hire a local ad firm or a local agency because they're trying to keep up with this, but even that won't be cheap. But I can say that digital advertising is a route. I just It just comes with a lot of asterisks for me in terms of how not to get killed financially doing it. When I did my work, we told people if they weren't spending at least $2,000 a day, they weren't even going to feel it. So what chocolate company can spend two to $5,000 a day? Uh, 
on digital advertising. It just it just seems like a mismatch. You can take a post on Facebook and you can boost it for $35. That might be a good strategy. But the other stuff that I'm talking about is, is probably off the table. The other thing you can do, and this is very effective, is find a way to repeatedly tell people that they can order online. So you can make up little printed cards with your online store address and a little text that tells them that they can order. And you can leave that on a table. You can put that in a stack, whatever. You can put that link into an email footer. But as you send out emails, it's always there. You can tag products in your social media posts and lead them back to a store. You can have printed physical signage at events. Make sure that every time you ship out a box, it's got that card in it that tells people that they can order online. You just brainstorm on all the touch points that you have with people and make sure that you continuously remind them that they can order online. And those little cards will get passed from person to person over time and you will start to get orders from people that that you've never met. Another idea is to do mailers to people that have already purchased from you online and mailers to people who've received those chocolate packages online, right? There was the giver and the givee, if, if you will. Send them both uh, some kind of a mailer, something that basically says, hey, we sell our chocolates online, hope to have you as a customer. Drop a flyer somewhere uh, physically, like it can be at a, it's harder these days, but there are physical bulletin boards. Sometimes you can put it up to, you can put a poster up at the local foods market. But like I said, they're getting a little bit harder to find. So much of that has moved to online. But basically some print, printing and mailing to people is a good strategy these days because so much of it is online that it really stands out if it's a physical printed piece. Let's look now at the things that you need to do before you launch your store. The first thing you got to figure out is photography. Somehow you've got to take good photos of your chocolates. It's got to be well lit. It's got to look nice. I guess that ranges from you being really good with a cell phone to hiring a professional food photographer. I've done both. And then... I've settled my system. I can tell you my system is I bought two light boxes, basically flash bulbs that connect to my camera wirelessly so that when I snap my shutter on my camera, the, the two flashes flash, one in front, one to the side with a white screen in the back. And I put my chocolates in the front and I get really great photos and that works for me most of the time. You can do anything in between. You just have to make sure you have good photography. I would also caution you against making every photo look exactly the same. And it, and then also I would caution you against making them look so different that there's no cohesiveness. And But I'm no expert. You look at my website and, and I, I don't know. I mean, I you could pick me apart really easily. So I'm not going to claim that I have superior knowledge there. It's something I'm always working on. Did you need product descriptions? So 
obviously you need to say what it is and you need to write something that's tantalizing and that's interesting. So you need to get your descriptions together and you may want to do some level of categorization as well. I do that on mine. So I say whether a product is vegan or low sugar or has a dietary issue of some kind. I can put products into categories. Once all that's done, you can go through the physical process of actually adding the products to the store. There's a back end where you upload your photos and answer a bunch of questions about its price and so on. You also determine the overall look and feel of your store. But I have to tell you, there's a reason that they have these templates and that reason is because templates work. I wouldn't go too far afield in terms of trying to invent your own look and feel. I kind of like stay between the guideposts. Also, there are so many storefronts to look at that you could get inspiration from any number of people out there that are selling chocolates. You probably want to get yourself a domain name that's not expensive. I would recommend you get one so that you don't have that free domain that comes with the online storefront. You want to find yourself a fulfillment location, a place where you can do your pick, pack, and ship. For some people, hey, that might just be your house, your garage, a separate room. If you already own a shop, maybe it's an area in your shop. Uh, in my case, it's a separate building. You just need to have a place where you're going to do this. You probably want to go out and buy yourself a label printer of some kind. It's hard to beat a Dymo a Dymo thermal label that you can put a four by six label into. I don't think these things cost, but like a hundred, $150 and they do so many different things. I'm a big fan. I wound up buying a different one for label printing for shipping, but that was before I really understood that a Dymo could do it too. So anyway, that's what I would recommend. But you need some kind of a label printer. If you don't do a label printer, you're going to be printing on like a laser printer, an inkjet, and then you're going to cut it out and then you're going to tape it onto the box, which doesn't look as professional and it gets kind of old after a while. So that's what I'd recommend there. You want to buy or gather your packing materials, whatever that's going to be. So that'll be a tape gun or bubble wrap, shipping boxes, which I get for free because I use the post office most of the time shred paper shred which is not free shrink wrapping i told you about already tape plastic bags if you want to use them ice packs those really cool reflective inserts that provide a thermal barrier whatever those packing materials are that you're going to use in a place for them notice by the way how quickly this adds up to a lot of stuff and that's why I'm saying a place is good to do this where you can leave all this stuff out and available versus taking it all out to do your shipping and then putting it all away again to save space. It's an issue. You want to get your printed promotional materials ready as well. Maybe you've got an about me card or that order online card that I was telling you about or thank you note or see me at such and such or your, your business card, whatever those printed promo materials, they have to be available as well. You need to set up shipping relationships. Your online software may have some shipping relationships pre-built so you don't have to do this, but they may not have them all. I have relationships with Federal Express. I have my UPS account 
and I have my post office account. I guess I have them all, um, at least here. I don't have DHL. And you would also want to make a decision on dis- shipping and handling charges. How are you going to handle shipping charges to the customer? Do you want to consider offering free shipping? And what does it really cost you if you want to offer it? And do you want to go the flat rate shipping option as well? Those are two different options. I will talk you through those a little bit later when we look at the ROI, but that's another issue. So before you launch your store, I'd say these are the things that you kind of need to have together. Now let's talk about the requirements to maintain and process orders. This is a spinning plate that you have to keep going. For example, you can't have it say happy Valentine's day in April, right? And mine just did that. I just went in April and looked and it said, happy Valentine's day, right at the top of my website. I feel like an idiot. This is the kind of thing you don't want to have happen. Every time there's a new product or a price change, you've got to touch that store. Every time there's a new holiday, you've got to touch that store and seasonal changes that affect anything like maybe shipping. You've got to update your store. You might want to have notices. I know one chocolatier that straight up stops shipping in the summer and there's a note right on the storefront that says, if you place an order between these dates, I will not ship it to you. When you do your order fulfillment, we talked through the steps already, budget about 15 minutes of time per order. That seems to be what the average is. You or someone must drop everything and prioritize when an order comes in because as I said before, someone's expecting that to happen at a certain amount of time. Then you've got to figure out who actually does all of this work, who actually takes that order and does all the mechanics and gets the box out the door. It seems like it would be something that would be easy to teach and to delegate. However, I've tried that a couple of times and I have had not perfect results. You will have to decide where you fit in this. I once had a person that I tried to have them do this and they kind of lacked that common sense and the detail necessary to do this right or the software was too hard, too many steps. And so there's just a sense of confusion. And so I never really felt confident that the stuff was going out the right way. And that confidence made me very uncomfortable. I tried it once with my own son, who was a great kid, but he's 16. And he, when we were going through, we were doing this together and we were going through a whole big batch of orders that had to go out. And he just straight up forgot something. He just literally just, he made box one perfect and made two and three and four and five. And they got to six and he screwed it up and I saw him do it. And if I hadn't been there, it would have went out. I guess if you don't get enough orders, it will be hard to delegate this task. Just remember that. If you get a ton of orders, then you can really teach into it and it becomes someone's job and they get really good at it. Fine. But if it happens just enough to where there's too much independent thinking that's involved, it may be difficult for you to delegate it and it may mean that you're doing it yourself. I want to be mindful of your time. We've gone through a lot of information here. The only thing we haven't really gone through are the economics, what the ROI is on this and some of the finer points of making sure that this is revenue positive for you. 
But I'm going to put that into a bonus episode. So if you are interested in that, you can listen to the bonus episode for episode number four, and I'll take you through the economics of this whole thing. And I'll also pull a couple of orders right out of my own system and walk you through the numbers so that you can see about how much money that you make when you take an online order and how that breaks out for you. Overall, I hope that you come to the conclusion that you need an online storefront. I pounded that in your head, I guess. And I think that it doesn't take a tremendous amount of effort to put one together. And you don't have to be super professional about it, but you'll come off looking fantastic because the software will make you look fantastic. So it's really just a matter of deciding that you want to take that kind of time and invest it in an electronic storefront and to make sure that you continuously keep that plate spinning because if you don't, it's going to look abandoned and that will look terrible for you. So just like a website, you want to make sure that if you start it, you stay committed to it. That's the only caveat really. Economically, it's not bad at all to have one of these things and you'll probably make money. All right, you made it through episode number four. What'd you think of that? If you already operate an online store today and you have ideas or you can think of things that perhaps I missed, don't hesitate to send me an email or a DM on Instagram and I'll get it on to a future show or to a show update. You can also submit an audio recording, which I can play. It's just kind of fun. That's on the show's website. That website, again, is anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, anchor dot F-M slash Constantine dash Zigo. Now, if you could just figure out how the hell to spell Constantine Zigo, you got it made. As ever, if you have questions or feedback from the show, please email me. Or if you have specific topics you want me to cover in a future episode, I'll do that as well. If you think there are people you'd like me to interview or people that you think we should be talking to, definitely let me know. Anything you can do to help promote the show to other chocolatiers in your circle is much appreciated. I think the more of us that are banded together in this, the better it gets for all of us. I hope you have a good week. I hope it's a productive week. And I look forward to being with all of you again for episode number five. Take care. The Business of Artisan Chocolate is written and hosted by Constantine Zigo. Music by the Wow, He's Really Talented, Phil Denny. Editing and production by the dapper and sophisticated Chris Sweeley. Our lawyers wanted us to remind you that Constantine Zigo is not a financial advisor. This podcast should be considered informational and entertainment, not financial advice. He's really just a guy that can open an Excel spreadsheet. And I'm Nikki, his loving and mostly tolerant wife.